This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi from Massachusetts. And this is Craig Williams from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. And I write a blog called Law Sites, another blog called Media Law, and Law.com's Legal Blog Watch. Well, Bob, before we talk about our topic today, which we really could call paralegal to paralegal, we're going to be remiss if we didn't mention the biggest story hitting the legal community today, yesterday, the scandal surrounding Elliot Spitzer, the governor of New York and former attorney general, uh, most notably one of the most well-known gunslingers who spent his life fighting crime, white collar, prostitution and otherwise, and now maybe brought down by his own actions. What do you think about that? Well, you're, you know, gunslinger is a good term. I think they used to call him the, the sheriff of Wall Street for his uh, work trying to clean up the uh, securities industry. Uh, you know, probably what's striking everybody now is is what they're seeing is kind of uh, basically the hypocrisy uh, of a man who, you know, prosecuted prostitution, who uh, has seemed to be squeaky clean up until now. And, and uh, for most people, it's just it's just a huge shock. I got a joke this morning that somebody sent me an email and said he's the first Democrat to have ever gone to Washington, D.C. and left with less money than he brought. <laughs> well, you know, the big question now is, is will he uh, step down uh, from governor's office? Uh, he would be, I think, only the second governor to resign over a sex scandal in, in the history of our country uh, if he does that. Uh, and also, will he be prosecuted? Well, we'll have to see if the Clinton touch of the apology carries the day here with him, but uh, it's time to get on to the topic of our show. What do you think, Bob? Well, that's right. Uh, let's let's turn to the topic of our show, and, and we're going to talk today about paralegals, uh, and uh, some might say their work is never done. Uh, paralegals uh, are defined as a, a distinguishable group of persons who assist attorneys in the delivery of legal services. Although paralegals cannot offer legal advice uh, directly, such as attorneys do, they are certainly considered to be the backbone of a, of a law practice. And it's growing as well. The, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the Office of Employment Projections, the legal assistant profession is projected to grow by some 33% during the first 10 years of 2000. And they're back in the news, uh, if for no other reason, than uh, there's an oral argument coming up next week at the uh, Supreme Court in a case uh, Richland Security Service versus Chertoff. I'm not sure if that's Rickland or Richland. Uh, which is a, a, a case that, that involves uh, recoverability of fees uh, for spend on paralegals in a case in litigation. Well, the Supreme Court has agreed to clarify whether the companies that successfully sue the U.S. in administrative proceedings are entitled to recover the full market cost, and I guess that's something we're going to be looking at today. Right. So um, with all of that uh, going on today, we're going to take a look at the role of the paralegal, uh, how essential they are to a law firm. I'm sure you and I can speak to that. Uh, and the paralegal versus the attorney, the hurdles paralegals face, uh, and even the Rickland versus Chertoff case and the growth of this legal profession. Well, I know that I wouldn't be able to function without paralegals. So let's get to the first. our first guest today is Tita Brewster. Uh, she's an ACP, current president of National Association of Legal Assistants. Tita is the uh, freelance senior litigation paralegal specialist with over 29 years of experience 
in numerous areas of the law. She's a certified legal assistant and has her advanced certified paralegal certifications in both trial practice and discovery. She specializes in assisting the preparation of cases for trial in both state and federal court, and she has more than 5,000 actual trial hours under her belt. Assisted the filing of the amicus brief in the Richland versus Chertoff case and in Missouri versus Jenkins, which also dealt with the reimbursement of paralegal fees at market rates. Welcome to the show, Tita. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. And also joining us today is Sherry Estrin, a PhD. Sherry is the CEO of Estrin Legal Ed, a Los Angeles-based continuing legal education company. She has written 10 books, including The Paralegal Career Guide, which is in its third edition, Sherry is a former administrator for two major law firms, and she is the editor of the uh, soon-to-debut uh, magazine for paralegals called No. She has been interviewed by Newsweek, by the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Tribune, and other prestigious uh, mainstream media, as we like to call it. Uh, she can be reached uh, at uh, www.estrinlegaled.com, and of course she writes the popular paralegal blog, The Estrin Report, which is part of the Law.com network that that both Greg and I uh, are part of. Uh, So welcome to the show, Sherry Estrin. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, it seems somewhat of an obvious uh, answer, perhaps, for uh, Bob and I as lawyers, but uh, let's hear uh, both of you say, how do you view the, the essential nature of paralegals to the practice of law? Well, from a paralegal standpoint, I'm very, very pleased to say that in the 29 years that I've been um, working with attorneys, they seem to appreciate the fact that we work with them, not for them. I've been blessed and lucky enough also to work with attorneys who look at paralegals in the legal uh, hierarchy as a cross as opposed to hierarchical. And um, I think that in effect, has changed over the 29 years that I've been uh, working as a paralegal. And I think a lot of that has to do with the amount of work that we have taken off the shoulders of attorneys for them to be able to do the other aspects of their law practices that are so important. And we've also done a little bit of pushing on our own to try to show the attorneys what it is that we can do for them to help them in the appropriate and critical aspects of providing quality legal services to their clients. Sherry, how about you? Well, this is a field that's very interesting to watch. Uh, it, uh, I would say that anyone who was over 50 did not enter, uh, did, did not graduate from law school uh, planning on utilizing a paralegal. So it's, it's relatively new. It's 30, 35 years old. And in that sh- very short period of time, uh, the field has established itself as an essential uh, element to the practice of law gotten to the point now where clients will insist upon the use of paralegals. They will demand that paralegals perform certain assignments uh, that are not the practice of law and that can be easily accomplished by a paralegal and saving the client a lot of money in legal fees. And in this highly competitive legal environment today, I think it's essential that attorneys pay attention to the fact that their clients are expecting them to save fees. And the paralegal is one proven way, in a very, and again, in a very short period of time, uh, of saving the client really unnecessary uh, uh, legal fees. So it's become a very, very important part of our practice in a very short period of time. Well, it's interesting that you both talk about the, the evolution of this field over the last, you know, three decades or so. I mean, it's, it strikes me that 
that not only have they become more central to a law practice, um, but they're the, the types of of law in which that's happened uh, has expanded significantly. Uh, I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit. And Tito, let's just start with you. But the, the sort of the, the areas of law practice in, in which paralegals serve uh, critical roles. Well, you know that's really hard for me because over the thirty years I've probably practiced uh, and assisted in practice in about thirty different areas of law. It seems to me that, and Sherry will probably be able to support this, that the large majority of paralegals that are working are in the uh, complex, long-term cases that have their incredibly uh, labor-intensive and paper-intensive, and the paralegals are finding themselves being able to fill a specific need and a specific niche for those attorneys who are working in the complex litigation and the class-action area of law. Family law is another area where they're able to help an awful lot. Um, Intellectual property, which is also very labor-intensive and paper-intensive, leads um, more paralegals to be drawn into that area and also those areas of law that bill the highest and are paid the highest are able, once again, to hire more paralegals, and the paralegals are able to um, bring higher billable rates to the attorneys to make it profitable. I think it used to be that paralegals are mostly found in complex litigation, but today with, with the advent of uh, software programs and the insistence by clients to u- utilize paralegals, we're seeing paralegals in every facet of the law, um, and it may, it may be that there may be more paralegals in complex litigation because of millions of documents uh, and, and the e-discovery, uh, electronic documents, and now even audio discovery that's, that's just overwhelming, but we're seeing paralegals in every aspect of, of, of every specialty, um, med mal, uh, insurance. Um, environmental, criminal, um, commercial, civil rights, um, securities is 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 a very complicated, but uh, but demands a, a, a highly sophisticated paralegal. Uh, bankruptcy is certainly big. Personal injury, product liability. I mean, we we, we see them everywhere, um, and now we're seeing them more and more in the corporate law setting. Um, more and more paralegals. It used to be they used to just assist attorneys in monitoring litigation. Now they're very active in compliance, uh, trademark, copyrights, um, international law, uh, mergers and acquisitions is big for them, real estate, so and contracts. Contract is very hot right now. Um, so we're seeing we're seeing paralegals and it's to me it's you have an attorney, you have a paralegal. Um, it goes hand in hand. It's not quite like it used to be where, well, maybe we'll try out a paralegal. It's an accepted practice now. It is, and actually in the court system, we have found that, at least I did, I worked on a trial for a year and a half, and working with the same superior court judge, after that trial, and he saw how paralegals were utilized in his courtroom, he required attorneys afterwards to utilize paralegals in his courtroom to assist with um, how the trial went on, working with his staff and things of that nature. Sure, you're absolutely right. We've gone um, in. We are everywhere because it makes sense. It makes sense to the attorneys, and it's all so with our education and our backgrounds and our continuing legal education that we find that we are able to 
assist the attorneys in every aspect of the law within the constraints and statutes that we're able to do so. We mentioned in the beginning that paralegal, the field itself, is growing. What advice would you offer for someone who's coming into the field, perhaps in college or just graduated from college? What kind of credentials do you need? What kind of experience do you want to be looking for? What first job should you be looking at? My first uh, suggestion would be to get a certificate. Um, There are two kinds of paralegals. One is transition paralegal and the other is a career paralegal. The transition paralegal is typically hired by major law firms on the East Coast and they will hire uh, people right out of uh, college on their way to law school or grad school. They'll take them on for about a year and a half. Sometimes they'll grind them, literally grind them, 2,000, 2,300 hours or more a year, and uh, and then they're out. They they have a training program that they give them, uh, and uh, they get a little taste of, of, of being a paralegal, primarily in complex litigation. The other, the career paralegal, if you're seriously interested in being a career paralegal, my suggestion is to get a certificate uh, from a, uh, an acceptable school that has a great placement office uh, and get yourself a job uh, in the area that you enjoy. I mean, it's almost to this point now where it's what is your interest and you can you can get a, a position in a specialty that, that is aligned to your, your special interest. But I think it's very important with the changes in education and the uh, demands of paralegals today and the sophisticated assignments that they're tackling to get that certificate. Well, it's really important, too, from the standpoint, and, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it from the National Association of Legal Assistance standpoint. We have statistics that show that if a paralegal has their advanced certification, either their certified legal assistant, certified paralegal certification, or the advanced certified paralegal uh, credential, they're able to garner higher billable rates for their attorneys, and also it sets them just a step above the otherwise qualified people that are out in the legal environment trying to find jobs as paralegals. I would definitely uh, suggest that they get a certificate from an ABA-approved school and uh, go out and market themselves through those ABA schools that actually have very good internship programs to support their paralegals after graduation. I I just want to say this about that ABA. Um, Please bear in mind it depends on where in the country you are or where in the world that you are. Um, Out of a 1,000 paralegal schools, there are only about 200 um, schools that are ABA-approved. And while many major firms will demand that you come from an ABA-approved school, it's not always possible. So the the next best thing would be to make sure that the school has an excellent reputation and that law firms in the region are hiring from that from that paralegal school. Otherwise, you may be paying a lot of money and sitting at home. And what what would a paralegal expect uh, after starting in this career? I mean, what are the what are what's the salary potential? What are the hours like? Uh, what's what are some of the rewards of, of this career? Well, you notice we paused. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sherry, you wrote the book on the paralegal career guide, so uh, maybe you can. <laughs> We're either thinking of how to word this or uh, thinking of how to avoid the question. But I'll tell you one thing. I've been in this field since uh, uh, probably since before some of you were born, and this is an extremely rewarding uh, field. Now, the salaries are all over the board. Salary, again, it depends on where you live. Uh, if you live in Los Angeles or you live in San Francisco or you live in a major city, you're going to get more and you can get starting salaries will be maybe 40000 a year. 
uh, depending on what kind of background you bring to the table. If you're in a rural area, um, somewhere in a small town in Oklahoma, maybe you're going to get maybe twenty-eight to 30000 a year. So it depends on what kind of education you have, where you're located, and what kind of firm you're going to go to work for. Well, NALA does a compensation and utilization survey every two years, and it will be out very shortly. And you can, it's free, and you can get it on the NALA.org website. And you will see that wide range, and Sherry is absolutely right. It, it's very dependent on where you are in the country and the type of law that you're actually working in. Uh, I've gone and anywhere from having a salary of in the six figures to the low 40s. And it, once again, it's dependent on the type of work that I'm doing at the time and the area of law. And in, in what about in terms of the hours? I mean, you, you threw out the, the horror figures of 22, 2,400 hours a year. Is that typical or, or is that, is that no. the extreme? No, that would be the extreme. And, that, and I was trying to actually um, make it a point about uh, the transitional uh, paralegal uh, who's expected to work for a major New York firm. Uh, that being said, if you are in litigation, um, <laughs> you've got to be there. I mean, if you're going to trial, you're going to trial. So you're expected to, to, to put in whatever it takes. Um, and those hours can be brutal. Some, uh, some of the major top 250 uh, AM law firms will require, have what we call a minimum billable requirement of 1,800 hours a year. Those are a lot of hours. But other firms don't have that, so they may be requiring you to work 1,500 or 1,600 hours a year. You have to remember that the paralegal is considered a profit center for the law firm. So um, whatever you're billing, um, uh, there has to be profit uh, uh, for the law firm. Um, that's one of the reasons why you're there. You're there to save the client fees, you're there to save the attorney time, and you're there as a profit center for the law firm. So some of the jobs, maybe a, an estate planning, a probate paralegal, might be a 9-to-5. Some jobs in the corporate uh, law department setting and government agencies are from 9-to-5 from or 8-to-5. But other positions, and again, depending on your specialty, uh, you, can be, you can be cranking a lot of hours there. So you need to decide uh, what's best for you. Well, litigation is my life. I'm actually getting some therapy for that. <laughs> um, I love trial. I love the stimulation. I love the the high of the the adversarial um, court system. Well, at least when we're in trial, we're adversarial. To it's not always that way when we leave the courtroom. But 2,200 hours and 24 and 2,600 hours is nothing. I worked for a, a partner one time who went on the record one time mistakenly by saying. If a paralegal at this firm meets their mandatory billable goal, as far as I'm concerned, they can have the rest of the year off. So in about July, I went into his office and said, okay, I've met my mandatory (laughs) billable rate for the year. I'll see you in January. And he quickly rethought that. But Sherry's right. It has to do with with the area of law that you're in. And if you're in litigation and you're in trial, that's what your life is. And uh, you have to be very careful to find, a profet- find the type of law to work in that suits your personality and su- suits your ability to put in and those it, long hours. There are, other, there are other specialties that you might uh, walk into thinking you're going to work a 9-to-5 and find out otherwise. So you need to, you need to uh, be clear on that before you accept a position. Mergers and acquisitions, you could be working some long hours. Uh, you might be working on a closing, uh, and you're there until it closes. So you need to research this very carefully before you enter the field. Well, it's time for us to take a short break. When we return, we'll hear more from our guests on what the future looks for paralegal profession and that profit center known as a paralegal. We'll be right back. 
Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs, Jake Craig Williams' blog at MayItPleaseTheCourt.com, likewise Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrosi. And I'm Craig Williams. We're talking to Tita Brewster, the current president of the National Association of Legal Assistants, and Sheree Estrin, the CEO of Estrin Legal Ed. We were talking briefly uh, before the program break about paralegals being profit centers and the couple of cases, uh, the one case that's pending now before the Supreme Court. And Tita, you, your organization filed an amicus brief. Do you want to talk briefly about uh, whether the United States government should be paying paralegals at market rates and maybe if they get if they win that one maybe they'll be paying attorneys at at uh market rates and not as a profit center. Well, it's interesting. Uh there was a decision that was issued December 26 in 2006 where the United States Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit found that paralegal services are not compensable as attorney fees at market rates under the Equal Access to Justice the Equal Access to Justice Act authorizes an award of fees and other expenses to certain parties who prevail in adversary administrative proceedings or in courts against the United States. This particular case, Richland, was in, in court and they filed a, a cost bill and they were not compensated for their paralegal fees at market rates. Although there is another case that is on the books, Missouri versus Jenkins, which NALA also participated in as an amicus, that granted paralegal fees reimbursement at market rates. So we have cited that case in the Richland case. We it was interesting because that we filed um, we requested cert um, in October and they granted it within about three weeks, which is almost unheard of. Um, they're actually arguing the case before the Supreme Court next week on the 19th, and I'm going to go to D.C. and be in chambers when they argue this case before the United States Supreme Court. But we believe that the court should follow the Missouri versus Jenkins, and uh, the reimbursement of paralegal fees at market rates is appropriate. This is a hot issue. I mean, this is a very hot issue. What, I, to me, what other way can you discourage a law firm for utilizing paralegals if they're not going to make any money on them? 
I mean, it's simple economics here. It's a, it's, it's why look at your P&L, why look at your profit and loss statement and see a loss on your paralegal. And still at the same time, encourage law firms to utilize paralegals in order to save the client's legal fees. I mean, this absolutely makes no sense to, to pay only at uh, the cost of the paralegal. Um, this discourages the client. It discourages the, the, the law firm. It discourages paralegals because they get uh, socked for uh, not enough billable time. Um, the whole thing for paying them at the cost of what it costs the attorney, paralegals are not a piece of paper. I mean, you know, we're not talking about the cost of a, of, of a piece of paper here. We're talking about somebody who's doing some very vital and important work for the case. There's absolutely no reason why um, law firms should not be reimbursed uh, at the market rate for paralegals. Well, that's correct. In uh, numerous lower court decisions and the U.S. Supreme Court's decision, as I said before, in Missouri versus Jenkins, found that under the Civil Rights Act, attorney fees were compensable and considered paralegal services as attorney fees since they were a component of the attorney fees and they should be compensable at market rates. And also, in addition, four circuit courts, the 4th, 8th, 11th, and D.C., have concluded that paralegal services are compensable under the Equal Access to Justice Act. So uh, the, I think the high court will follow the lower court's decisions and their previous decisions and, and uh, rule in our favor. I, I hope so, because the, the, the argument against that is that the increased increase use of paralegals um, might result in less efficient performance of legal services. But the, the argument to that would be that um, paralegals work under the supervision of an attorney. So very few attorneys that I, I know of would take a chance uh, that they're going to delegate work to a paralegal that is beyond the paralegal's capability um, or to the extent that it is uh, unethical or inefficient. Attorneys just aren't going to do that, and if you have a good paralegal, paralegal is going to stand up and say, that is beyond the scope of my ability. If the Supreme Court decides against compensating paralegals at their billable rate, do you think that the next step will be insurance companies challenging paralegals and other uh, corporate uh, challenges to paying paralegals at, at uh, billable rates and forcing paralegals out of the legal profession? Oh, I think that that would be difficult. You know, in 1989, when NALA filed the first amicus in Missouri versus Jenkins, there were an estimated 53,000 paralegals in the U.S. Today, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that there are over 200,000 paralegal jobs being held in the United States. It's, to, it's advantageous for insurance companies to have paralegals work with their um, counsel because it does provide quality legal services that they would otherwise have to pay attorney rates for. It would not be in the best interest, their best interest to deny paralegal fees to be reimbursed. So I don't think it, I don't think so. I think that they're looking at the big picture. And I, maybe it's the, the cockeyed optimist in me, but I don't, I don't see how, um, they can rule against us in this case. Well, and as you say, they've addressed this in the past, but, uh, I guess we'll we'll have to wait and see what uh, how the oral arguments go next week and, and what those might forebode about uh, how the court will decide this. Well, you'd probably have a better chance if there were paralegals in the Supreme Court, don't you think? Well, that's that. that don't forget, I'm going to be there next week. I'm going to be there all week. Who knows? No, I mean working for the justices. Oh well, we're we're actually working on that. We're actually looking at it. They're everywhere. They're in the court system everywhere, and that wouldn't be a bad. That wouldn't be a bad place for us to to be 
well, I, that would be a dream job for me. <laughs> I'd even give up the crazy litigation life. Well, you know, that raises an issue, the fact that paralegals are everywhere. I just, I didn't want to let this conversation go without talking, uh, at least uh, mentioning the role of paralegals in, in smaller practices and solo practices. And we've, we've talked about complex litigation. We've talked about complex intellectual property disputes and whatever. But I, I, I have seen, uh, any number of, of, uh, practices where a solo or a, or a two lawyer firm uh, works uh, so closely with a with a paralegal that it, it's like one of those you know marriages where they start to finish each other's sentences or something. Uh, it, paralegals uh, uh, I've seen play really critical roles in smaller firms, and I, I just wanted to acknowledge that uh, it's not just it's not just for big firms, is what I'm trying to say. Absolutely not. In fact, the majority of paralegals are in smaller firms. They're not in the, the majority. You know, there are only so many major firms. Um, and uh, with the million-plus attorneys out there, the majority of million-plus attorneys uh, in the United States are not in major firms. They're in uh, firms of 10 or less. So that's where you're going to find the majority of, of, of your paralegals. And in terms of the amount of the number of paralegals out there, I firmly believe it's, it's a larger number than 200,000 because there are so many um, paralegals that have the position of paralegal, but it, it goes by a different name. So I think the number is closer to 300,000, and the majority, again, is in, in, in uh, for law firms of 10 or less. Well, our time has uh, sped by here, uh, and we're near the end of our program. But before we wrap up, we like to give each of you uh, an opportunity to kind of share your final thoughts on this topic and also to tell our listeners where they can find out more about you uh, in, in your work. So... Uh, Sherry, why don't you go first? Okay. Okay. Um, uh, you can you can kick this thing around about utilizing a paralegal or not, but I I will tell you right now, um, you will be behind the curve and uh, off the bandwagon if you are not currently utilizing a paralegal in your practice. Um, and uh, the best thing to do is to go to a like firm and find out how they're u- utilizing a paralegal and see what they're doing and the various types of assignments uh, that paralegals have and get yourself educated, uh, or you can go to NALA or NIFPA or any one of the other associations and, and find out. In terms of me, you can find me at www.estrinlegaled.com, and we provide training for uh, paralegals and litigation support professionals, and we're the founders of the Paralegal Super Conferences that are held around the country. And Tita, how about you? Well, Actually, we're, uh, you can find us at nala.org, N-A-L-A.org, and we provide continuing legal education uh, for paralegals. And there is a myriad of um, articles that you can get, things that will help you. We, we uh, do the utilization and compensation survey. We have a model code of ethics and a model guideline for the utilization of paralegals. And our mission is to provide uh, continuing quality, continuing legal education for paralegals. And we're always out there wanting to listen to what it is the paralegals need. And whatever the paralegals need, that will be our mission to be sure that they they get. And I thank you so much for allowing us to be there today. Please check out our website. And if you can join us for our 33rd Annual Convention and Exhibition, which is in Oklahoma City this year, July 30th through August 2nd, 2008, you can check it out on our website. And on one of our... Um, wonderful moderators today are he's actually going to be at our convention this year aren't you that's right looking forward to being there oklahoma in early august i don't know (laughs) 
Oh, it's going to be wonderful. It's <laughs> always wonderful. You don't even notice it. You won't even notice the heat. You'll have so much fun. It's an exciting event. And thanks again for inviting um, us to participate. This is certainly something, a profession that I'm not in transition after 29 years. This is a field that I feel very strongly about, and uh, it's the best darn profession out there. Well, that about does it for Lawyer to Lawyer this week. Remember, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at thelegaltalknetwork.com. And a very special thanks to our guests for being with us today. And uh, a reminder to our listeners that you can also find all of our programs on iTunes. This weekend, Bob will be venturing off to the East Coast to meet up with the folks from the Legal Talk Network. We'll be taping a message on camera that you'll see in the upcoming weeks on the Legal Talk Network. Hope to bump into you on my trip, Bob. Yeah, I saw you're doing brunch in New York as well. That's right. Uh, well, uh, looking forward to it. I hope we uh, see each other. And uh, on that note, I'm going to leave you with a quote from Abraham Lincoln. Uh, the leading rule for the lawyer, as for the man of every other calling, is diligence. Leave nothing for tomorrow which can be done today. Well, Bob, I thought a paralegal said that. <laughs> a paralegal wouldn't have said the man. They would have said the man or a woman. That's true. All right. Well, good talking to you, Craig, and uh, have a good trip, and uh, hope to run into you while you're out here. Very good. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.